Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Lane. I am the youth director and the young adults pastor here at B4. And uh, if you're new, we're really glad you're here. I'm going to go ahead and invite the ushers forward. We're going to receive our tithes and offerings. But just know that if you are new, uh, this is something that our family does as an act of worship. There is in no uh, way an expectation or desire for you to give. We're just really glad that you're here. I want to take a moment to celebrate some of the stuff that's going on in the midst of our church community this week. Last Sunday, we had our all-church harvest festival, which was really, really fun. My son went and had a great time. He was one of the 500 other kids that dressed up as Spider-Man. Uh, we had over 900 kids come to this event. Yeah, it was really great. And what's cool is that a lot of them were people that were new to B4. So this was their first experience with us. And uh, we gave away lots and lots of candy. The high school students walked around as different characters and um, lots of fun dancing and costumes. It was, it was really, really great. Uh, second announcement is this. If you, uh, we're having water baptisms the 11th and the 14th of next week. If you would like to publicly declare your commitment of faith to follow Jesus, you can sign up to do that on the B4 Church website, b4church.org. I love baptisms. Um, it's such a wonderful way for us to celebrate what God is doing in the lives of people uh, in our community. So that's it for the announcements. We're in a series right now going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And this series has been a lot of fun. And I really mean that. It's been a lot of fun. This book has a tendency to have a reputation of being really depressing. But I think that that's usually because of our unfortunate misunderstanding of what this book was intended to do and what it means. This book is one of the five wisdom writings in the Old Testament. And wisdom is so, so precious. We live in an age where a high value is placed on information and intellect. And because of that, we don't often mind beneath the surface of information to actually discover wisdom. Wisdom, as you know, is far more than what we know in our minds and what we can regurgitate. Wisdom is a way of being. Wisdom is a deeply spiritual thing. And wisdom is like good food, right? Good food, it, it, when we experience wisdom, it, we have to experience it. It's not an IV that we just get injected straight into the veins. We have to smell the aroma. We have to chew on it. We have to digest it before, before wisdom can become beneficial to the body. And like food, it needs to be put in front of us on a regular basis. Because we are prone to wander, we are prone to forget. We don't just eat once when we're born and then we're good the rest of our lives, right? We keep eating. And as we grow, hopefully in wisdom, our understanding and our palate for wisdom becomes more nuanced, becomes more refined. I love wisdom in the scriptures. There's lots of places to find wisdom in the world, but I think wisdom in the scriptures, wisdom found in Jesus, is the best wisdom that we can learn for ourselves. This ancient scroll, Ecclesiastes, it's a deeply misunderstood work, but once we begin to understand it, this book can become a blessing to read and not a burden, right? So let's start with a little review, because the way Ecclesiastes is set up, um, the, the, the principles of wisdom that we learn along the way, well, like good anthropologists, we're going to pick them up and put them in our tool belt, and we're going to excavate the rest of the book. It's meant to influence the way that we continue to read the text. So we're going to do a little review and, uh, like good anthropologists, use our tools to excavate the rest of the site. Ecclesiastes introduces us to a character that we've come to know as the teacher. And this teacher, they're maybe a little bit cynical in their personality, maybe a little rough around the edges, but they have really, really good intentions because the teacher wants to challenge us, the reader, on our perspectives on certain aspects of life. And we've had to rethink three really critical things the last three weeks. The first thing that we thought, uh, that we rethought was life itself. 
the, the first week we learned about this word meaningless. Everything is meaningless. We remember that this translation of the word meaningless is not great for our English uh, context because that word meaningless is really hevel. And hevel means vapor. So a lot of things that we chase in this life, money, power, pleasure, uh, it's all influence. Or sorry, it's all, it's all hevel. It's all vapor. Life is deeply mysterious, so it's impossible to grab and manipulate. We can't make life do what we want it to do. Once we try to grab it, we realize that it's hevel. Uh, the Christian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, life is not a problem to be solved, but a reality to be experienced. Second thing we had to rethink together was this idea of time. And Brad introduced us to this word ha-olam. When we hear that phrase that God has set eternity in their hearts, ha-olam is not just about infinity. No, it's about the mysterious and transcendent nature of the uncreated that we long for. That within each of us is this desire for something more than just the physical. That there is a spiritual dynamic to our lives. C.S. Lewis wrote, If I find in myself desires nothing in this world can satisfy, I can only conclude that I was made for another world. And this is not to say that our bodies and the physical are not important. The body of the resurrection of Jesus, of course, points to a redeemed physical reality. But the idea is that within us, within all of us, is this longing for the heavenly amidst the earthly, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then the third thing we had to rethink was our posture towards these things, towards time, towards our lives. And we learned about three words that categorize hands in the Hebrew language. The first being kofen, and that's this. Kofen is two hands cupped together. The idea is that I'm trying to grasp as much as I can, that I'm afraid if I don't cup my hands, it's going to fall through my fingers. It's, it's grasping at things. It's the rat race. It's, it's greediness. That's kofen. The second was yod. And yod was this posture here, the folding of my hands across my body. What's the point of even engaging? I'm just going to sit back and let it happen. This is complete checking out, right? And then there was the way to wisdom that the writer teaches is kof. And this is one hand in front of you open like this, holding things loosely but intentionally before you. Okay, how was that review? All of those principles are going to be important as we move forward, especially this last one. So keep them in the back of your mind as we go through the rest of Ecclesiastes. The passage that we're looking at today is going to be out of chapter 5. So if you want to turn there in your physical Bible, you may. It's also going to be on the screen. It's right in the middle and then two chapters over. This passage appears to be dealing with the following question. What does it mean to be content? What does it mean to be content? Now, I don't know if you're anything like me. I really struggle with this, right? Okay, let's say maybe we plan to take a vacation, yeah? I have expectations of what this family trip is going to look like, yeah? My wife and my son and I, we're going to go down to the coast. We're going to go to Cannon Beach, and so I have these expectations. It's going to be great. It's going to go this way, and it's going to be awesome. We're going to have a two-hour drive down to the coast, and it's going to be beautiful. My five-year-old son is be- going to be completely content during that drive. My wife's going to put together a Spotify playlist and download some podcasts. And it's going to be a really great listen as we go. We're going to get there a little early in the afternoon, so we're going to window shop a bit, and we're going to drink some coffee, go back to the hotel room, go to dinner. And then after that, we're going to get back to the hotel room at a reasonable hour and go to sleep. And then I'm going to wake up before my whole family does. I'm going to finally read that book that I've been wanting to read. Expectations. Maybe the reality looks a little bit different, right? Maybe on that two-hour drive down to Cannon Beach, my five-year-old is a five-year-old and a pretty vocal five-year-old about that two-hour drive, yeah? Maybe we lose reception somewhere around that jerky stand on the highway and we didn't think to download the playlist while we still had 5G, so now we have nothing to listen to. 
Maybe we get there and uh, we want to shop around and we want to get coffee, but it's Tuesday. Oh, everything's closed on Tuesdays in Cannon Beach. (laughs) And then we go out to dinner, but everywhere there's a three-hour wait because there happens to be a corgi convention in town. That is based on true events. (laughs) It's very real. If you've ever seen 900 corgis on the beach at the same time, it is a sight to behold. Wild. I might be exaggerating. It was a lot of corgis, though. It was a lot. And I get back to the hotel, but it's not a reasonable hour because we had to wait three hours for dinner. And so we go to sleep and then I wake up a little bit earlier. And halfway through that page that I've been wanting to read, I hear, Daddy, Daddy, I have to go shishi. Shishi is pee because we're Filipino, right? (laughs) My whole day starts off a little differently than I had imagined, right? Now this, this is, you know, a cute analogy, but you scale this up to anything in our lives. We have our expectations and we have our reality, Right? It's that classic expectations versus reality meme. Oh, excuse me. And we often get fixated on things and expectations of what we think our life ought to be. And then when reality falls short of those expectations, we become discontent, right? And in this situation, being content is dependent upon my circumstances being what I imagine rather than what they actually are. And as many of you sages in the room have discovered through sheer experience, Contentment is vital to a non-anxious life. And a non-anxious presence is something our world really needs right now. Our world is anxious. And one of the biggest gifts that we can bring to our world is the non-anxious presence of Jesus in our lives. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump into chapter 5, and as we go along, we're going to unpack the passage as we go, because it can be a little weird. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven. You are on earth. So let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. Okay, so these opening uh, verses can be a little confusing, especially when the teacher starts talking about dreams. But what the teacher is addressing here is actually an aspect of religious life that is really easy to fall into. Because if you're anything like me, we often come to the almighty God of creation with the gift of our perspective, right? We come to him with a strategy of how we think he ought to fix things. And we think if I do the right dance and I sing the right song, I can convince God to do what I want him to do, right? This is an oversimplification, but if you're honest, that's happening in your mind as you pray, right? And the teacher goes on to suggest that we instead go near to listen. How many of us have robust prayer lives that are full of us talking to God, but not a lot of us listening to God? Because if you're anything like me, you cram prayer into the nooks and crannies of your life trying to figure out when you can have time to do it. So there's time for me to pray and tell God what's going on in my life, but not a lot of time for me to create space and actually receive what he wants to say to me. Because we know that his voice comes in this still quiet. And silence is an exceptionally rare commodity in our world today. It's noisy. You know, in the ancient Hebrew acts of worship, during all the sacrifices and stuff at the temple, there was actually a sacred silence that was observed. You were quiet. During the, art, uh, during the acts of sacrifice and worship. And if we remember, back on our Leviticus series, all of the acts of worship that were done in the temple were meant to contrast the acts of worship made by the pagans. Because the gods of the ancient world, they were very different than the Hebrew god. 
They were mighty and powerful. It can do a lot of supernatural things, but they were kind of just like us. They were petty. They were like these giant toddlers that we had to appease and convince that human affairs were worth that time. But that is not the character of God. The Hebrew God has done everything that he has done in order that humanity might draw near to him and we and he to them. He is intimately invested in the affairs of human beings. He doesn't need to be convinced to be. Unlike the surrounding pagan worship, it's not about appeasement and transaction. It's about connection. It's about relationship. So the teacher writes, draw near to listen. And this word listen is shama, which means not merely just to have sound waves go into your ears, but to listen and then obey. Because remember, wisdom is not found just in understanding, but in living. Listen and obey. It's an invitation to trust God who is, as the writer says, in heaven, as we are on earth. Therefore, he sees things we can't see. When it comes to Jesus, obedience isn't something that he uses to oppress us, to subjugate us. Obedience is an invitation into freedom, freedom that only Jesus can give. The invitation is trust. You can trust God because he's not a petty toddler. He's a perfect and loving father. Jesus talks about this in his famous Sermon on the Mount. You can find that in Matthew chapter 5 through 6. And he says this, When you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. My friend Maddie reminded me recently that practicing prayer is not about getting good at prayer. Prayer is about growing in intimacy with God. And intimacy builds trust. And trust moves us from a mindset of scarcity Kofen, like this, I got to get all that I can because it might run out. And it moves us to a mindset of abundance, like this, that what he has will never run out for me, that his mercy and love is enduring so I can hold it intentionally and loosely so that I can receive and give it away because it doesn't run out. All right, verse four. When you make your vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. All right, so here we are at the dreaming again. What is he talking about? Well, the dreaming that the writer is talking about here is not the MLK Jr. kind of dreaming, like a hope for a better future, creative imagination. No, dreaming in this context is more about the chaotic and sometimes nonsensical nature of dreams. You know like when you're drifting back and forth between awake and asleep, and you keep having dreams, and like after about a half hour, you're like, I don't know what's real and what's not anymore? That's what they're talking about. We see a type of prophetic dreaming in the scriptures, but but in this context, most of the time, dreams is characterized by chaos. And, and, And being overly preoccupied with the meaning of these dreams is, as the writer says, meaningless, or hevel, meaning it's hard to grasp, it's confusing. He's characterizing, listen to this, he's characterizing a fool as someone who is trying to make sense of things that don't make sense. So the worshiper in this scenario is trying to figure out why things didn't go their way. They're doing all sorts of wild things to try to coerce God into compliance. They're making promises that they can't keep. They're protesting the temple messenger. I made all the right sacrifices. I did all the right things. Why are things not going my way? Basically, God, I did everything you asked. Why won't you bless me? Ever been there? Of course. 
We often say, God, I'm doing the best that I can down here. Can you throw me a bone? And sometimes we try to make sense of things from our perspective, and they don't make sense. Because God is in heaven, and we are on earth, and his perspectives are higher than ours. Trying to make sense of things and the way that they happen and why can be havel, vapor. No matter how hard we try, we won't be able to grasp it. This is better than this when it comes to our relationship with God. One implies a posture of trust that I can freely receive and freely give. And then the teacher goes on a little bit further down in verses 8 and 9 to talk about the injustice in the world. He sees the corruption and the evil in the world around him, and he writes as though we shouldn't be shocked when humans create horrible systems, especially when they turn away from the eternity set in their hearts and turn towards the created rather than the uncreated. They turn away from trust and go to their own solutions. Last month, my, my uh, family and I, we went to the pumpkin patch, and my mom and I are watching my son play in one of the playgrounds, I'm a little biased, obviously, but I think my son is incredibly kind, and he's immediately very trusting of other children. I remember one time we were at Jimboree with him when he was like two, and he just walked up to another kid, grabbed him, and kissed him right on the face. And I was like, buddy, boundaries, boundaries. So my mom and I are watching him, and he's gotten a lot better at boundaries at this point. Um, but we're watching him, and we're watching him be like, you know, loving and kind to all of his friends. And my mom just turns to me, and she says, I just really hope people don't take advantage of his kindness. And I said something that every grandmother wants to hear, trying to comfort her. I said, oh, they will. (laughs) I know, I'm a terrible son. But I said that because it's true. There is evil in this world. And evil sets out to kill, steal, and destroy everything that is good and pure. It's just true. Brokenness, evil, and suffering... They are sure things in this life. So is it better to actively avoid suffering or to learn how to endure it? Everyone in this room knows what it is to suffer. And the heart of our Christian faith is not ultimately about the immediate transformation of our circumstances to escape suffering, but rather about the transformation of ourselves into the likeness of Jesus amidst that suffering. Jesus was ultimately characterized by his willingness to do as the Father asked, even if what the Father asked required pain. Not my will, but yours be done. Now, I'm going to take a moment to be a little bit vulnerable with you and know that this is a little hard for me to talk about, but I think it's important for us. Uh, This last year, my wife and I experienced three miscarriages over the course of nine months. And... It's been incredibly difficult, but we've also received so much care and support from this loving family, and I'm so grateful for our church. But it was a level of suffering that neither of us had yet experienced. It was a woundedness that wounded us in a way we didn't know we could be wounded, you know? And after the third miscarriage, I remember I was actually standing here in this room, I was standing right there, and I was worshiping with all of you And we were singing a newer song, and there was this line that we were all singing, Come alive in the name of Jesus. This is a house of miracles. And I believe that. But I've had to wrestle with the reality that the good that God has promised for those who love him is a now, but sometimes not yet 
kind of promise. And along the way, there's a lot of suffering and a lot of difficult things that happen, and I don't always get to know why. What I do know is this. God wastes nothing. And when we suffer, we walk on holy ground, ground that Jesus shares with us because he knows what it is to suffer. And as we were singing this song, I began to look out on the sea of people. And my heart began to break as I realized just how much suffering was represented in this room and how many stories of heartbreak and tragedy have taken place in all of our lives. That is something that characterizes every single person here, whether you're watching online or in this room or not. That in the past and maybe even right now and definitely in the future, life has the capacity to kick our butts. But amidst all of that suffering and pain, we were here and we sang the words, we bring everything to the feet of Jesus. Everything in the name of Jesus. Trust. It's about trust. You know, I thought that this trauma in our lives was going to push me away from God, if I'm being honest with you. I didn't think that I could handle it. In a lot of ways, I couldn't. But it turns out, I actually discovered new depths of intimacy with my Heavenly Father amidst that pain. New depths of intimacy with my wife and my son amidst that pain. Trust in Jesus is what characterizes a follower of Jesus. And everything we endure while joyfully obeying him is repurposed for something good. God wastes nothing, especially not your pain. C.S. Lewis wrote, if you think of this world as a place simply intended for our happiness, you find it quite intolerable. Think of it as a place for training and correction, and it's not so bad. <laughs> Come on, Lewis. Now, now hear me. What I'm not saying is everyone has it tough, so get over it. No, in fact, quite the opposite. I think we need to learn how to grieve well. We need to learn how to lament and be vulnerable and honest. In fact, I think the world would benefit by seeing the church be honest and real about what they experience and what they feel. Jesus wept. Jesus lamented. It's good to have our hearts broken when we witness evil. Wouldn't it be weird if it didn't? It's good. But I think where we get stuck is when we try to wrap our heads around why. If we get stuck there, we'll never find contentment because there is no answer that is completely satisfactory, right? The story of Job. This is a story also found in the wisdom literature. There's a whole book dedicated to this story. And Job is a, a, an honest man. He's a righteous man. He's favored by God. He's faithful to God. And Job endures everything horrible that a person can endure. His entire family is taken away from him. He loses all of his possessions and his house and his land. And he gets stricken with all these horrible diseases and boils on his skin. And all of his friends get around him and they're, they're trying to, to counsel him. And they're trying to figure out why things panned out the way they did. Job, what did you do? What in your life went wrong to make this happen? And they exhaust the wisdom and the philosophies of the world on this conversation. And there is no satisfactory answer. And finally, Job has a conversation with God. 
And he asks him, God, why? And God basically tells him, Job, buddy, look at the universe you find yourself in. It is mysterious. It is complex. It is vast. It is just too big for you to wrap your head around. But I was there when it all came to be. In fact, I made it so. So I'm going to ask you to trust me. And that is not an easy answer at all, is it? But it's the only one in which Job can find any sort of peace and contentment. And eventually, Job, uh, he gets restored by God everything that he had lost. But that doesn't always happen to us in this life. But it's meant to signal to the reader that hope in God is not misplaced. And he is working together all things for good. But in the meantime, broken people elevate broken leaders who have broken solutions and create broken systems and suffering goes on. But those who put their trust in God are able to endure suffering and brokenness because we know this is not how the story ends. We know that this is not all that there is, that God is bringing about a better future for this world. And everything we endure points to that. So the teacher in Ecclesiastes, he laments that injustice and acknowledges that the only way for injustice to truly be cured is for a truly righteous king to come in and take over. And for this, we look to Jesus. He's the fulfillment of everything good the world needs. And he's a good king because he doesn't just reside over us and oppress us. He draws near to us. He calls us his friends. He welcomes us into partnership for the redemption of all things. Isn't that cool? All right, so now we're in the final leg of this thought. The teacher has set the stage for how we approach God. We listen and we trust. And then he gets into what happens when we don't and when we do. Verse 10. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. (laughs) This too is meaningless. It's like that common phrase, right? What is someone living on the street and somebody who are rich have in common? They both wish they had more money. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to harm of its owners, or wealth lost to some misfortune so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and everyone comes so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands." This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All, they, all their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Let's pray. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Put that on a coffee mug, right? Like that's, that's rough. So before the teacher offers us his way to wisdom, he observes that everyone joins the rat race and they scramble to try to get as much as they can and all for what? In the same way that birth happens for all of us, death happens for all of us. What you accumulate doesn't matter. (laughs) Jesus, in his famous Sermon on the Mount, we come back to this again, he reiterates, reiterates this in a way that I think is so loving and kind and good. He says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. For is the life not more than food and body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? 
Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, and yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Gosh, I love Jesus. Jesus is saying that we don't need to come to God with scarcity in our hearts, with kofen. Maybe he doesn't have enough for me. He is overflowing with riches as a heavenly, perfect father, and so we can come to him like this, ready to freely give what we have freely received, right? His call is for us to be grateful and present in today because tomorrow will worry about itself. G.K. Chesterton wrote this, there are two ways to get enough. One is to continue to accumulate more and more, and the other is to desire less. So our high school students have been joining us in the main services today, and I'm going to take a moment just to talk to them specifically. How are you doing, guys? So glad. You know, it's interesting. You, there are studies that have been done to show that perhaps you are going to have the greatest IQ of any generation that has come before you. It's pretty cool, huh? (laughs) But here's the thing. Information does not equal wisdom. Right now, what you're being taught by like almost everyone in your life is that you need to put your trust in financial and material security. Listen, finances are great, financial health is good, responsible, even loving, but there is no such thing as worldly security. Everything that we have can be taken away tomorrow. So your hope has to be in something else. I think that your gift to us, to the world, is not going to be to join the rat race. Your gift to the world is going to be to be grounded in who Jesus has called you to be so that you can have a non-anxious presence amidst a very anxious world because your hope and security rests in something else, something beyond. Jesus, I just pray for these students right here and for every high school student in this room. Would they know who you are Would they be grounded in the goodness of your presence? Amen. Love you guys. Love our students. Love that they're joining us in here too. Where was I? I got lost. Ah, okay. Moving on. Verse 18. This is what I have observed to be good that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and to be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with the gladness of their heart. What if we were more occupied with the gladness of our heart than we were about the worries of tomorrow? Gratitude. The teacher is suggesting that contentment in one's life is the pathway to enjoying the few days that we have. 
You know, the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote a bunch of stuff in the New Testament, he had a really hard life. Multiple execution attempts, he was beaten and, and persecuted and thrown in prison. And one of the times that he was thrown in prison, he wrote this in Philippians chapter 4. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. Usually we read this passage and we go, yeah, I can beat the other football team because God's on my side. No, he's talking about the idea that we can endure any kind of suffering, anything that life throws at us because we have Jesus. The secret of being content in every situation is that when we are with Jesus, there is literally nothing we can face, not even death itself, that can defeat us. Because our hope is in heaven, a fully restored reality where there are no more tears or crying or pain. Perhaps we get so fixated on transforming our circumstances that we lose sight of what God is transforming in us amidst those circumstances. It's this simple. God is who he says he is. He has done and will do everything that he has promised, and we can trust him. That's it. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What would happen if we stepped into our days with this posture of gratitude and contentment like this, ready to freely receive and freely give? Wouldn't that offer up a non-anxious presence for the world around us? But the teacher, he opens up this passage with the importance of coming to God with silence, ready to listen. I think a lot of our contentment rests upon our willingness to receive the peace of God in our listening. So, on your way in, you were given these elements, the bread and the cup. If you want to go ahead and open them, you can. These are a symbol, a reminder of God's love for us, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. And we're going to take these elements in just a minute. But before that, I want to just take a minute to be completely silent in the presence of each other and in the presence of God. It can be a little awkward, but here's the thing. This, everything in our faith comes down to Jesus. And the fact that he has done everything that he has done so that we can be with him and we can be redeemed. So what does it look like for Jesus to be the hope that is the anchor of your soul in any and every situation? What does it look like to be content in the wealth of our Heavenly Father? Just take a moment, observe the elements in your hands, and just ask God to speak to you. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, after he had given thanks, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together.
And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's drink. Would you stand with me? And if you feel comfortable to hold your hands out to receive the benediction. May you be men and women who are deeply content knowing that you have everything you need because of the wealth of love in the person you are with, Jesus. In your name we pray, God. Amen. Amen. Have a great week, everyone.